A thousand years ago, a great Polynesian explorer and sailor named Kupe set out from his home in Polynesia, braved the open seas in his Wakaharua, and discovered an uninhabited New Zealand. This waka was a large, double-hulled, ocean-going canoe, capable of travelling vast distances, driven across the waves by wind and strength of arm. According to Maori oral tradition, over the next few centuries, a total of seven of these grand canoes arrived in New Zealand. Their names were Awatea, Kurahaupo, Matatua, Tainui, Taukomaru, Takitimu, and Te Arawa. The Arawa canoe sailed into what is now called the Bay of Plenty on New Zealand's North Island and landed in an estuary. The weather was so beautiful and the ground was so fertile that they named the place Makatu after the huge gardens they kept in their lost homeland of Hawaii. For the next 600 years, the people lived alongside the Makatu estuary and the Kaituna River that flows into it. Kaituna means eat eels, and marine life became an important part of the local diet and culture. Then, a couple of centuries after the arrival of Europeans, a series of projects were initiated culminating in the Kaituna Cut of 1956. The river was diverted, and local wetlands were drained to provide new farmland. As a result, freshwater flows to the estuary diminished, causing siltation. Marine biodiversity crashed, and it kept crashing. For the sub-tribes, or hapu, still living near and depending on the estuary, it was a calamity. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. In this first episode of the new year, we have partnered with WSP to tell a story about renewal. And that story is about a project that aims to correct the mistakes of the past. It's called the Kaituna River Rediversion and Makatu Estuary Enhancement. The project hopes to remedy the long-standing negative effects of the Kaituna Cut on the health of the estuary and the local community. And this project, although impressive in scope, doesn't stand in isolation. Around the world, people are beginning to realise what they've lost to environmental degradation, and managed coastal realignment or conservation projects are given increasing importance, engineering with rather than against nature. But to correct the mistakes of the past, it is first necessary to understand the past. All throughout New Zealand, there are rivers, some very big rivers, and the rivers belong to a particular tribe. Each tribe has their own river, their own mountain. This is Liam Tapsell. And the rivers, as I've, I've, I've translated it, you wouldn't want me to, you wouldn't want it in Maori, so I've translated it. The, the word is, uh, we use is orangatonutanga, which means sustenance. So the river is a source of strength, life, identity, spirit, and sustenance for the iwi. So that's how powerful the feeling amongst Māori for their river. Liam is an elder of a sub-tribe of Te Aroa, which is the main tribe, also known as the iwi. There are many sub-tribes 
that ours is not for COVID. And Liam works as a cultural monitor for projects and works in the region. Now that means that I'm, I, wherever there's uh, diggers working, excavations, and they're in particular areas that we consider to be sensitive, then I have to be there in case um, relics are unearthed. Among the artefacts unearthed are stone tools around 300 years old, as well as special greenstone weapons and tools. This is a kind of jade that is important to the Maori. These finds may go on to the university or they may go to local collections. Liam's family and his sub-tribe, his hapu, have lived in this region for hundreds of years. And as I said, each tribe has their own river, their own mountain, and it all means the same to each tribe. Now, the Kaituna River was a beautiful river. Now, way back when I was a kid, this was before the, just before the closure. And we knew everybody in Makatu, that's where my little township, little village, Makatu, by the, by the sea, everyone there knew that this is going to be a disaster if they go, go ahead with this project. So they tried, my grandfather and grandmother, they tried and tried. They even sent a delegation to Parliament in Wellington to voice their concerns. And no, it was, it was that typical attitude of that time was, you know, it's our way or there's the highway kind of thing. So amongst their, their, their concerns, there was just no, nothing whatsoever. You know, don't bother us, go away. And they did, they did. So they closed it. And uh, my grandmother and grandfather, they died broken, you know, they died very, very, very um, sad that this had happened to their river. They knew what the consequences were going to be and everyone was right. Before the Kaituna cut, locals could stride out across beds of a local clam called Pipi and the water was knee-high at low tide. Today, there's no water. You stand there, it's just sand, all sand. It's completely gone. So the Pippis are way out in these little channels and they're choking each other because they, they've got to have water over them. Whereas in the past, the water was about a foot above the Pippis at low tide. So they were always covered and they were plentiful. We used to get rakes and rake them up and put them into bags. And, and the importance of that estuary at that time, we call it the Te Pataka o Te Aroa, which means the food bowl of Te Aroa. Now, during the two world wars, the Depression, of course, and the two world wars, uh, there were many people coming to Makatu to gather shellfish because Makatu was, had, was abundant with shellfish. Pippies, cockles, mussels, sea urchins, and fish was everywhere. Uh, flounder, uh, mullet, eels, they were everywhere, all in the estuary and out, just out of, out of the harbour around on the, on the ocean side. Other iwi would come here as well. And we, we, um, we were only too happy to share our resources with all the people that came because of the hard times. The seafood was eaten all the time and was especially important for weddings, for bereavements and important birthdays. For example, your 21st, your 50th, your 70th. Now, my grandmother and grandfather, um, that's my crowa and my queer, they had their own white bait stand and it was a little little building made of uh, roofing iron. It had a platform, had this little building made of roofing iron. They had a little fireplace in it, a bed, cupboards and food. 
and dry clothes because if it rained, you didn't stop white baiting. You kept white baiting even through the rain. So when you finished, you had dry clothes to, to hop into. And um, at night, the white bait would not run at night. So my grandmother would get out her hand line. She'd bring up the pippies or mussels for bait and just throw it out and she'd catch trevally. Which is a large fish or... Kahawai. Kahawai is a game fish, nice to eat to us. Eels, you may even catch eels. So we'd go home with a, a kerosene tin full of white bait and some fish. My grandfather would row us up the river in the morning, drop us off at the white bait stand. Then he would return to his farm. And he'd come back two days later, row back up the river, pick us up and take us home. And when we got back to the, to the landing, He'd have the old draft horse there with a the sledge because the white bait was too heavy to, to carry, you know, a distance. It was just too heavy in this kerosene tin. So he'd put it on the sledge and we'd all sit on the sledge and away we go home. But this life passed into memory in 1956. And then when they diverted the river, they closed it off and that's what happened. It silted up. Terrible. Absolutely terrible. It silted up. The other areas was mud. All the riverbanks started breaking away, eroding because of the plant life was dying. No fresh water was coming through. And every time the tide came in, it was only salt water. So the salt water gradually killed all the plants that were around the, the, the banks of the Kaituna. And that was all crumbling. And the Kaituna was becoming polluted. And, and this is what happened to that river. And it broke everyone's heart, you know. And so decade after decade, the community campaigned for help and eventually, they were answered. So, in 1926, after a big flood, there was a piece of legislation passed called the Kaituna River District Act, one of these local acts of parliament, and that created two river boards, kind of control flooding and to maximise the agricultural and development potential in the catchment. This is Pim Demonshi. He is the coastal catchments manager for the Bay of Plenty Regional Council. His team basically carry out the projects that the local government and community want to see done. Usually this is environmental improvement work. He knows quite a bit about the historical environmental changes and challenges in the region and projects to improve things. And over the years that those boards existed they did a number of things you know they stopped banked the river they straightened out some of the meanders and oxbows and created diversions and there was a very big flood in 1951 and that prompted them to start thinking about well what else can we do to reduce the frequency of these big floods and they decided well they could probably cut the river out to sea and bypass the estuary and that would reduce the low tide water level and it would all, it would have two benefits from a development perspective. One, it would reduce the flood intensity or peak. One, it would reduce the flood intensity at peak. And two, it would drain the surrounding wetlands and allow them to be turned into pasture. And I found a memo on file from 1952 where this the district engineer, a guy called Dale Revington, he said, oh yeah, we could do that, but I'm pretty sure that it'll um, kill the estuary if we do that. Um, so he recommended a, a partial diversion. 
which is actually the state of the estuary at present, after the commissioning of the modern re-diversion project, but we'll get onto that in a minute. So he recommended a partial diversion, but at that stage, central government, we, we have this thing called the Ministry of Works back in those days. We don't have one at the moment, but um, the Ministry of Works had a subsidy or a grant scheme for these local river boards where if they came up with a big project, they would put $3.5 in for every local dollar raised. And, and they were interested in this project, but they said, look, we're only going to put our 3.5 to 1 subsidy in if you do the whole thing. It's all or nothing. And, and so despite the fact that the local engineer had recognised the downsides, I guess the, the money was just too good to turn down and they went ahead with the full 1956 diversion anyway. So it's a bit of a shame, you know, yesterday's solution is today's problem and, and so we've ended up spending $17 million trying to rectify the, the, res, you know, the results, the negative effects of, of that particular decision. The project to put this right is one of the largest the council has ever undertaken. And Pim says it's the most significant project of his whole career. A typical initiative might be $50,000 spaced over three or four years. Planting hardy vegetation to protect a wetland or a stream, for example. But this was different. It required substantially more work and it took a long time to get here. The local tribes realised in 1979 that the river's removal had had a negative effect on the estuary. And so they, they asked for it back then. And central government in 1988 provided some funding to the Department of Conservation to do a partial restoration. The result was the construction of four 1,800mm diameter circular culverts, which were placed underneath Ford Road, which is itself built on the barrier that separated the river and the estuary. The culverts were flap-gated on the estuary side to prevent backflow. This put 4% of the river's flow back through the estuary, but it wasn't enough. It didn't make enough of a difference to the estuary's hydrodynamics or ecology to improve the shellfish, you know, the, the ecology and the cultural values. So in the 2009 council term, so we have three-year council terms here, there was a councillor from the local community at Makatu called Raywin Bennett, who represents the Ngāti Pikiao iwi. And she advocated for this project quite strongly with her fellow councillors and was successful in, in getting at that stage. Around $7 million at that stage. And from there, we started doing quite a lot of investigations and modelling to see you know, what kind of options might be hydraulically feasible, which of those options then met the criteria for success from the ecological or cultural perspective, and then, you know, what kind of compromise could council end up funding that would, A, work, be sufficiently cost-effective for them to put money against, and be acceptable to the local community as, you know, sufficiently aspirational. So that's, that's, that's kind of where we ended up. After modelling, it was decided that, without a major intervention, any effects would be minimal. And so this became a serious earthworks project. Okay, so starting from the, the upstream side, 
we began by creating about a one kilometre long channel from the river upstream of Ford Road. And the reason for doing that, I'll just digress for a second, uh, was to maximise the freshwater proportion of the re-diverted flow. If we had constructed the diversion channel closer to the sea, we would have been recirculating salt water. And um, one of the real ecological benefits in the estuary was getting that fresh water from the Kaituna River. And, and incidentally, that was also one of the criteria for success for the iwi was, was maximising that, that freshwater proportion. Um, but coming back to describing you know, the, the scope of the works, one kilometre long, 60 metre wide, two metre deep channel with a brand new stop bank on the southern side. We had to dredge, I think, 23,000 cubic metres of anoxic mud from part of that channel. Because it had been a deposition area for a drainage ditch from the surrounding farmland for the last 40-odd years. And uh, then we constructed what we call a salinity block. And that was to block one of the channels that was present before the project so that salt water couldn't short-circuit its way to the new culverts. Then... Um, we had to construct a jetty and a floating pontoon for the commercial fishermen and the, the Coast Guard. They were operating in one of the places that we needed water to flow through. So we shifted their facilities, gave them new facilities on that salinity block. Then we removed the four existing culverts that were built in 1996. And we had to put temporary sheet piling around both sides of them so we could dewater that site and that was that was quite a major because we were working inside the floodplain the whole time and at, at one, one or two occasions we did have either a king tide or a river flood that came over the top of the temporary sheet piling and flooded the whole site and so we had to pump that back out again and get get underway again and then inside that temporary sheet piling we then um, poured concrete foundations and um, well before we poured the concrete foundations we put the a permanent sheet piling that went seven metres down below the, the concrete, uh, then the concrete, then the culverts. So there are 12 2.5 by 2.5 metre box culverts set out in an array running north-south underneath Ford Road. On the downstream side of those culverts, we've got vertical slide gates of marine-grade stainless steel. They're operated hydraulically with a, with a spindle to, to drive them up and down on every tidal cycle. These slide gates are big. As Pim says, 2.5 by 2.5 metres, and around 15 millimetres thick. Every time the tide rises on the riverside, it creates a differential in water level with the estuary. This is detected by stilling wells on each side of the gate. And when it exceeds 40 millimetres for more than three minutes, the gates start to open, three at a time. They're set to open at a rate of 250 millimetres per minute purposefully slow to avoid harming a kayaker or any other river user who might be close to the gate. As the tide falls, the reverse process happens. This system can also be controlled if there is a coastal flood, which allows operators to close the gates and hold back the river water to protect the Makatu township from even worse flooding. They only expect to need this kind of intervention once every 10 or 15 years. On the downstream side of the gates, we had to widen the pathway into the estuary so that we had you know, quite a, a good hydraulic cross-section. Uh, we didn't have very much head to work with in this diversion. You know, I think a maximum is about 400 millimetres or so. 
So in order to get the volume of water that we wanted from the river into the estuary on the rising tide, we needed that 60 meter wide channel of two meters depth to, to get it to flow through um, at, at sort of less than two meters per second. And then on the downstream side again of that, of that forward road, we acquired some land, about um, 30 odd hectares of land from one of the farmers in the area. And that had been wetland up until the 1950s. And you know, it was really trying its best to be wetland again. So in, in acquiring that land, we were able to sort of just, just kickstart the natural process and um, use some of the excess cut material from widening those channels to create a range of different wetland and supertidal dryland habitats which you know have now been substantially planted up to create places where you know birds and um, invertebrates shellfish etc are starting to come in um, quite a lot and then the the final piece of the puzzle was inside the estuary itself a number of causeways had been constructed in the 1960s and 70s and they blocked tidal flushing between those different parts of the estuary, and we removed those. In removing them, the team had to create a 40-metre-long wooden footbridge to give access to a Maori-owned block of land in the middle of the estuary called Papahikahawai. Once all 12 gates were fully commissioned in February 2021, the project moved into an environmental monitoring phase. Critical to any modern project is understanding its impacts. But the historical context made this especially true for the Kaituna River and Makatu estuary. Someone who understands the importance of good environmental design is Steph Brown, the technical principal for planning and environment at WSP New Zealand. Oh, I'm a little bit of an unusual case. I'm involved in um, planning work and also environmental training. So the planning side of my work means that we work alongside designers, um, whether they be engineers, architects, landscape architects, ecologists, to help them deliver projects and do the community engagement and get the planning approvals for a project. So that's that side of it. The other side of it is I'm involved in, we train, we do a whole lot of environmental training um, in different sectors. So I involved in designing training courses and delivering them. So <laughs> it's an odd combination. If a planning approval gets publicly notified and there's a hearing, hearing commissioners are appointed and need training to become certified. Steph and her team teach them about process and what good practice looks like, testing evidence, how to make good decisions. Yeah, fairly, fairly full on days when you're training, but um, it be, yeah, a lot of fun as well. Steph is a student of hydrology and formerly worked for a council looking at river and coastal processes, which is relevant to the ongoing Kaituna River work post-commissioning. But she's been involved in the project since 2013. So yeah, so it started obviously with, with the planning work, which was coming on board to help them refine the, pref the preferred solution or option they'd come with, um, help manage all the technical inputs to make sure they were going to meet the needs for the planning process. For example, Steph advised on that decision to move the diversion upstream to maximise fresh water flow into the estuary. She also supported engagement with the community and with stakeholders, especially the iwi. We also got brought on board to um, separately to do the property work because council needed to purchase land. 
So um, we're involved in the property purchase side of things. Um, we also ended up getting separately again um, as a tender the ecological work in terms of the, the terrestrial and the avian and the wetland work. So um, our ecologists were involved with that. And as the project progressed and went into construction, we ended up acting as council's project manager. Since then, Steph has been involved in compliance, ensuring all of the planning approval conditions have been met. 40 pages conditions, um, which for a restoration project seems a lot because you kind of think, well, surely it's a good thing. But it was about ensuring that what we thought would happen would actually happen um, in terms of so there's a large environmental and but also in terms of cross sections, making sure we don't cause erosion program that kicked off just before we finished construction. And every year there's an annual monitoring report that's due and regular reports back to the community and those sorts of things. So come early next year, I'll hand that over to council to continue doing on an annual basis as we've sort of finally checked off the large list of conditions that we've had to comply with and they settle into an ongoing monitoring program to, to basically see what the recovery of the estuary looks like. Steph reiterates the importance of working with nature and says that for this, both an understanding of systems and engaging with the iwi was critical. You need to understand the history of something to understand how it got to where it got to and what happened to start and look at solutions. And that's part of to also letting understanding what nature would want to do because effectively it's going to find its own new equilibrium. You know, we, we've intervened again, you know, to try and help in a positive way this time, but it's going to find its own balance in its own time. And so you've got to go back and understand the history and go and listen to the stories of what it used to be like, what people valued and how things changed to understand, therefore, what is it that we should be restoring? What is it we should be putting back? How should we be doing it? So that, that in some respects for me, Yes, there's a design, yes, there's some engineering in it, but that's kind of, that's the means to the ends. It was more about how, how are we actually going to get the outcomes that we want to get, which was, was the restoration. How are we going to be able to maximise that? So what about that headline item, the siltation of the estuary? How is that going now the project has been commissioned? So previously it would take 15 tidal cycles for the estuary to flush. So in other words, it would take that long for the water to, to exchange, a full exchange. So if you think of it as a bathtub, because it had filled up with sediment over the years because there was so little water coming into it, the bathtub was kind of almost 90% full of sediment and 10% kind of almost full of water. And so that's why it took so long over a whole tidal cycle for, well, 15 of them. And so what we've ended up with is a full flushing in two and a half tidal cycles. The increased flow of water, particularly during rain events when the river is higher than normal, will over time mobilise some of this excess sediment. And the other big thing that we did is that the area that's become wetland, that 20 hectares obviously historically was wetland, but it was drained and turned into farmland. And the only way it could be farmed was with drainage channels and those sorts of things. But it had a, a series of hard sort of causeways around it but in one of those causeways linked um, to what's called Papa Hikikawai Island, so the island 
that's there between the spit and the estuary. So that was the only access to the island. But what that did was effectively cut off the upper estuary. And so it, it could barely flush. It, and it would basically was anoxic and it had all this algae in it. So the removal of those causeways had an immediate, obvious effect um, from a positive effective, because all of a sudden the estuary could flush where it couldn't previously. And so that the removal of that hard causeway, and, and you can see a little bit of it when you look at aerial photographs now, um, where it ended. And we left a tiny little bit part behind too, and the birds have discovered that as, as habitat. It's a nice little tiny island for them. So, As for the environmental monitoring, it is extensive, and the majority of it is in the hands of the council staff. One of the council scientists has a suite of monitoring sites in the what we call the lower, the middle and the upper estuary. And so they are looking not only just at the water quality, they're looking at the shellfish in terms of the number and the density of them. They're also mapping the algae. And we've obviously already had a good good flushing of that. Um, in some areas, it's almost down to zero, where previously it was 100% cover. Yeah, so that that's, and then also just the uh, microfauna in terms of what's what's living in there um, as well, in terms of density and abundance of those, um, and seeing if there's any change in species. The principles of good environmental design are easy to summarise. Steph says it's about thinking beyond the now. It's thinking not just about solving what you see now um, you've got to think on a long time scale often what we do is just think short term you've really got to think about what it will look like in 50 years time and 100 years time whereas previously a lot of people might be thinking on this 10 30 year scale and when you and when you're working with nature nature doesn't deal in decades you know it, it deals on these massive time scales um, and so we need to be thinking intergenerational as opposed to short-term thinking about what solutions are. They're the tougher decisions to make though, because you're trying to think, you know, what is this place going to be like or what should it be like in 30, 50, 100 years' time? And it's hard to imagine them. Liam and the iwi are thinking long-term. They are replanting and reflooding the wetlands to rejuvenate land far beyond the estuary. They mobilise school children for this, and so use it as a learning opportunity. This work will go on for many years, but they connect children to their environment and their history. Utmost in this, and the true test of the project for the Maori, is a concept known as Mori. And this is one for Liam. Yeah, yeah, it's a hard word to describe. But Māori, I'll do my best. Uh, it's a life force. It means a life force. The life force of the river. We believe the river's got a, a life force of its own. Trees have got a Māori, a life force, very spiritual. And the river is the same. The Māori, the, this, with this re-diversion, the kaituna coming back, the fresh water coming back, the spirit of the river will, will return, the, 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 the essence of the river. The vitality of the river will all come back. It's Modi will come back and re um, energize the river, if you like. And not only the river, but the people as well. So that's the ultimate aim for the people. 
But what about his own place in this story as an individual? How does Liam feel about this work? Well, we went and they were diggers and into this farmland and we started digging it, contouring it, canals and um, um, ponds and special plants planted in there. And then to me, a very emotional part of all of that was when we let the, the water in, let the water come through. We took the bun down and um, in stages, took the bun down because you had to do it at low tide. And then he stood and he saw the tide as it used to be, pre-1956. I always used to say, you know, all my crow and queer, my grandmother and grandfather, they'll be looking down with a big smile on their face, you know, to see the return of, the, of all this um, saltwater marsh. A lot of the um, eels and what have you all hide in there during the day. And the bird life that's come back is unbelievable. All the bird life that's come back to these saltwater marshes. It's unbelievable. So because the, the Modi of the estuary is returning, the vitality of the estuary, certain types of marine life are returning and the birds eat a lot of that marine life because they're returning, so the birds return. And this is what's happening. It's just like a domino effect. And you go down there and you can see the difference. You can see the, the vitality of the estuary, all the birds. Uh, it's a tremendous sight. Liam and the community recognise that it will take decades to see the end of this process. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, you're exactly right. That's why I said I won't see the uh, the end result of our wetlands, but I can see I can see it progressing. My kids are too old. I'm too old, so I won't see it. But I'm glad I was. I'm glad I'm a part of that project. There is a Greek proverb that says. A society grows great when old men plant trees in whose shade they shall never sit. And this is something the Maori know intrinsically. They consider themselves temporary stewards, holding in trust today that which has been passed down from the ancestors on behalf of those who will be born tomorrow. And the Kaituna River project will help fulfil that trust. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Bernadette Ballantyne. Sound Engineering by Ross McPherson. Series Supervision by John Young. And our own River of Sustenance is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, WSP, and also to our guests. Thank you for listening. You can find Engineering Matters on all podcast apps, on Facebook, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn. And don't forget to check out our website and sign up to our newsletter for the latest engineering announcements and developments from around the world.